I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to Muses Podcast. We are the podcast all about the women of rock and roll, women of music, groupies, wives, girlfriends, industry women. We cover everything. That's right. Welcome. I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. I'm feeling in good spirits. And I'm excited for this episode. I've been really happy about all of the episodes we've been doing lately. Yeah. I'm just feeling good. Links, I'm like I'm I'm feeling good. My like hair is getting long. <laughs> you look good. And I was gonna say it's nice seeing your shoulders for once instead of like underneath five layers. Oh, We're I both know. just like reveling in summer right now, I think. And uh Here's the thing about these old farmhouses. They are an icebox in the winter and they're friggin' sauna in the summertime. But I do better in the heat. So yeah. I, I'm i much better in the heat. I'm not complaining about it. And I, I'm happy to just open up some windows, put on some fans, wear my tank top, and I'm happy. I already told you a little bit about this, but I feel like it is relevant to our podcast so i am gonna mention it i told you i've been watching this reality television show yes and so what it is is the hills new beginnings now i watch trash i have a whole bunch of guilty pleasures links doesn't to unwind that's what i do i binge those kinds of shows i'm not huge into like the real housewives franchise or anything But I love the 90-day universe, all that kind of stuff. So I used to watch Laguna Beach, which turned into The Hills, which was did a spinoff of The City. And now they've brought them back for The Hills New Beginnings. And they're all in their 30s. And it's just a wild time. Brandon Lee, who is Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's son, is in it. He's a mess. He's beautiful and gorgeous and he's just trying to get it together always has really cute girlfriends he's in it and another i mean there's a lot of rock royalty ish spawns in here because linda thompson who was with elvis presley for five years her son brody is on the show as like a real main character oh yeah i forgot about that yeah actually brody even mentioned on the show he said because he's sober for the taping of this episode and he said and he goes and visits his mom linda and she gives him great advice and she's really sweet and she's on the show in little snippets and he said in his confessional you know my mom always gives great advice because she dated elvis presley and while he was in his substance abuse 
period so she really knows what it's like to be with somebody like that so like elvis gets name dropped in this show you know if i dated elvis or someone i was related to dated elvis i would try to put that in every conversation as much as possible <laughs> well it's not linda talking about elvis it's brody <laughs> mentioning his name so another famous rock star's son just appeared this season as well and i told you who it was and i sent you a photo of him <laughs> yeah. sean stewart rod stewart's eldest son what's sean like well i guess they all know who he is he is because he's a hollywood about town kind of a guy everybody on the scene knows who he is but they all seem to be quite surprised that for who his father is he seems really nice and look really funny i think he's kind of awkward i don't think he's very good looking um showed up to the first date with audrina wearing a turtleneck with a leather jacket <laughs> which i can't stand that's um, the photo you showed me and i was like this outfit is just a huge no yeah yeah he i think that him i looked it up because i wanted a bit of a spoiler but i think he and audrina are dating but i think for a while she's like resisting it because he is he's kind of nerdy like he's just yeah oh there was this one scene where they all go to San Diego together and he gets invited and at the end of the trip she goes into his room to chat with him and he's packing a suitcase and he's like I've never packed a suitcase before and she's like you've never packed a suitcase who packs your suitcase and he just looks at her with this kind of grin like this little grin on his face and he's like friends I'm like what your maids like who your your assistants who what so as much as they're they're like oh for rod stewart's son he's so down to earth i'm like excuse me (laughs) what i don't think so or he's just that doesn't sound right anyways well you'll have to keep me updated on uh that because it sounds really funny will do (laughs) well for this episode we're gonna go back in time not to the early 2000s but to the 60s 70s i really had so much fun reading this book it's called delta lady by rita coolidge it came out in 2016 she kind of ends the book in the early 80s but i did of course a little bit of research uh since then to fill in some blanks but rita i already knew she was awesome but she is just so cool and I'm so glad she shared her story and I really want to encourage people to check out the book because there's so many side stories and so many amazing musicians and artists that she mentions that I'm I can't fit into this because it's not her specific story but I loved everyone in it and I think our listeners would really enjoy reading it as well great i cannot wait i don't know anything about her i've had this book on my kindle since it came out and i don't know why i hadn't covered it yet maybe because i really didn't know that much about her either so i only knew you know that she was with chris christopherson and that she was a singer and everything so i just i didn't realize how in the scene she was and she was also a great storyteller I'm ready. So Rita was born May 1st, 1945 in Lafayette, Tennessee, to a family of artists. From the moment she was born, she was taught to really value music and art. Her family always says that she could sing before she could talk. (laughs) Her father was a Baptist minister and her sisters, Priscilla and Linda, along with Rita, they were all singing in the church by the time they were like two or three years old all of the best singers usually do (laughs) right this is a familiar story it's with her sisters that she learned how to sing harmonies and about how important harmonies are another uh theme yes exactly love that blood harmonies she describes her parents as the best in the world she says she never once saw them in an argument they were just happy and really good people. Her father was Cherokee and her mother was of Cherokee Scottish lineage. 
her mom was a teacher and she would stay late to teach a music class that she wasn't paid for because that's how much she loved music and wanted to share with the kids and understood that like it's important to teach art to children. And her father also did the same with Sunday school students. He was a visual artist, though, more of a painter, which Rita also is. What was the religion? A Baptist minister. A Baptist. Yeah, okay. She describes herself uh, in her childhood as scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. She really admired her dad, who taught by example. Everyone loved him. She talks about what a caring, giving man he is. He really does sound perfect. She says, one thing I learned from watching daddy from the time I was little is that if there's some kind of injustice being done or spoken about and you don't say anything, then you become a part of it. It became important to me to do that, to let my daddy's voice live in me and behave that way wherever I went. Good message, daddy. Yeah. So one of those things that her family really could not abide by was racism and Anytime she witnessed it or saw any kind of injustice, like she really did make a point to call it out. And of course, being of Cherokee descent, she experienced firsthand racism as well, especially, you know, living in Tennessee and everything. Yeah. One of her best friends when she was a young teen was Brenda Lee of I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I am sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Brenda was already famous by then. And they went to the same high school and are still friends to this day. She mentions that in 1985, they actually toured together with Tammy Wynette and Jerry Lee Lewis. So I'll throw in a fun, a fun, I don't know. I'll throw in a story about Jerry Lee that she mentions. Uh, Well, on that tour, Lewis was an alcoholic, she says, and that he had to be carried on and off stage. Who boy. One time, Jerry came over to her with his new wife at the time and tried to introduce them. And he was like, this is my wife. Um, uh, And he couldn't remember his wife's name. And she chimed in, I'm number six. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, Well, good for her, I I guess. And if you want to hear about Jerry Lee Lewis's seven wives, head over to TikTok because Lynx has a really good two-part TikTok series on that. Yes, and that's quite a story. I'm number so six. I I'd add that in. Yeah, at least she had a sense of humor about it, right? No kidding. So when Rita was 13, her life changed. She was in a serious car accident, and she went through the windshield. Whoa. Yeah, she needed 60 stitches in her face. <sighs> she was out of school for over six weeks. She remembers an incident when she went back, and she saw a note her friends were passing that read, Rita is a teenage Frankenstein. Oh. Yeah. She says, it broke my heart, but it also challenged me to be everything and do everything. I decided this was not going to take me down. It's going to make me stronger. Yeah. And it did. Good. But, of course, she mentions that things like that, like traumas that she's experienced, she, of course, still carries with her. And like they shaped who she was as a person. Yeah. In her sophomore year, her dad got a job at a new parish in Florida. So the whole family moved out there. In 1963, she began attending Florida State. She and a friend of hers decided to join a sorority, but it didn't take long before they were rebelling against the stuffy rules. And when a friend got suspended for something that they all did, they threw in their pins and told them where to go. (laughs) Of course, when Rita made it big and played Florida State, the sorority had a huge banner out and was like, welcome back, Rita, like nothing had ever happened. Of course. (laughs) Rita says this is when she moved into the sort of bohemia part of her life and hippie culture was, you know, just becoming a, a big thing. She got her own apartment. She spent her nights listening to Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, Bob Dylan, They were all huge influences on her. Her and her gang were kind of part of the art department. So they really looked the part. They lived the lifestyle. They were also very much aware of the segregation that was still going on. And she was constantly out protesting in front of stores that wouldn't let black students come in and things like that. In 1964, the World's Fair was being held in New York. 
and they were recruiting students to work it. So she ended up moving to Brooklyn with some friends. She was 19, and it was her first time out of the South. She brought her guitar to New York City, and she began playing in the village. So think, like, inside Lewin Davis vibes. Oh, wow. Yeah. She had begun performing with others back in Florida, and she was well-received in New York, but unfortunately, she had another kind of scary incident happen on the subway when a thief put a knife to her throat, and after that, she just wanted to move back to Florida. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what she did. New York back then was especially not so safe. When she graduated Florida State in 1967, she decided to move to Memphis, hey. where her dad, yeah, where her dad was now um, working at another church. So she moved in with her sister Priscilla. Priscilla is amazing also, by the way, and a singer, and I will tell you a little bit about her as well. So Priscilla was now a divorced mother of two, so Rita helped out with the kids, and she was really considering becoming a teacher, but instead, of course, turned to music. Thank God. Yeah. She got a job singing jingles in radio stations, and that led to her first record deal. The company she worked for was called Pepper Tanner, and they were forming their own label, so she recorded a song for them called turn around and love you they wanted her to change her name to get this Antoinette Lovely <laughs> okay she was like I think Rita Coolidge is just fine thanks <laughs> <laughs> so soon Rita was immersed in the Memphis music scene and she met a man named Teeny Hodges he was a great guitarist, and he's probably best known for working with Al Green on songs like Take Me to the River and Love and Happiness. Amazing. Yeah. Of course, he did way more than that, too. He's amazing. Rita says, Teeny and I were best friends. We were lovers, and we were absolutely crazy about each other. Really? Uh... Fun fact, I was looking up Teeny, and apparently Drake is Teeny's nephew. Wow. Small world. No kidding. Yeah. So it's through Teeny that Rita is beginning to experiencing new kind of music, going out to clubs. And she was going to clubs that other white people at the time weren't able to go to, right? Teeny was her entrance into that world. And we said lovers, right? We said lovers. Were they out? Yeah. Yeah. But... Teeny did have a wife and kids somewhere. So they weren't like a like a serious couple. They were like, you know, a lighter. They had it was a friendship that was sometimes more you know, love, respect, mutual appreciation, but not like like she also dated other people at the time too. So. Great, love that. Yeah. She mentions going to a club with Teeny and seeing Ike and Tina perform and there's a horrifying backstage moment where she gets to meet Tina. So Ike and Tina weren't having a good night, and she said Tina said something about Ike splitting her head open, and she was confused, and she was like, what? And she says that Tina pulled off her wig and showed her a scar on her head that ran from the front all the way to the back. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Tina says, this is what he does. Horrifying. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting, too, that Tina was opening up to strangers at the time. Clearly, everyone knew about this while it was happening, right? Yeah. But, I mean, what's Rita going to do about it? She unfortunately can't prevent that. She also got to go to the studio with Teeny when Al Green was recording and sit in the control room. So she was already entering like that cool world as well. Her sister Priscilla was also dating a musician, Booker T. Jones. Oh, They fell in love, and they actually decided to get married, and when word got around, remember this is Memphis, the KKK burned a cross on her parents' front yard. Again, horrifying. And it's crazy to know, like, this is, like, the mid to late 60s now. Like, this this isn't that far away. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, the South was not a great place for them to be, so they decided especially after Martin Luther King was assassinated, that 
they were gonna out, the whole family moved to California cool yeah oh one little random fact too when she and her sister were living together in Memphis they had another roommate called Venice Starks and she was Otis Redding's girlfriend and she was known around Memphis because Elvis would hire her to sing at his New Year's Eve parties every year cool yeah so before she officially moved she met some people who were going to be important in her life Bonnie and Delaney Bramlett so they were a husband and wife musician couple who really did not get the credit that they deserved they influenced so many including Rita and Elton John they worked with Leon Russell and they were recording their first album at Stax Mm. so she got along great with them and she was doing like just helping out doing backing vocals and stuff and soon her and Leon Russell began having an affair. Hot. Yes. After Bonnie Delaney and Leon recorded at Stax, Leon was really encouraging Rita and Bonnie and Delaney to go out to LA to sing there. So when the sessions were over, Leon asked, will you drive with me to LA? And she said, yes. You got to go to LA. She says their encouragement gave her the self-confidence that she had lost with her car accident. Yeah. I loved this little paragraph. She says, Certainly people were attracted to me because I was an anomaly, a southern Cherokee belle. But I had a college education and I was determined to live my dream, and I am doing pretty well. I felt my relationships were based more on depth than on beauty. I was coming into my power and realizing I was able to do anything I aspired to, and that gave me the confidence to leave Memphis for L.A. with Leon. Love it. I took only my suitcase and some clothes. I was just going to test the waters, or so I thought. (laughs) Was she there forever? Well, she's there for a long time now. So Rita gets to L.A. She finds out when she gets there that the single that she recorded is actually a big hit. And, in fact, it's the number one song in L.A. She had no clue. Amazing. That led to her appearing on a lot of Southern California television, which really helped her get into the L.A. music scene a lot easier. It also helped knowing Leon, of course, who was already a huge fixture in the scene. She was meeting a lot of talented people, and because she had her hit, she didn't have to, and I quote, Worry about being tagged as Leon's old lady, Mm -hmm. the preposterous sexist catch-all that male rock and roll musicians, supposedly so enlightened, affixed to any attractive female in a relationship. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. She describes Leon as a bit strange (laughs) and that he only had really like two personalities, Mr. Entertainer or Mr. Introverted. She mentions him out of the blue, asking her thoughts on having a threesome, and she didn't know what that even meant. So he explains it to her, and she's like, no, I can't bear the thought. That's not for me. And she realized, okay, maybe I'm not the girl for Leon, and maybe my days are numbered. So she sort of began moving her way out of Leon's house. She's like, my time is limited here. I need to find a new place to live. The most interesting part about this, though, in my opinion, was that he suggested their friend for the threesome, Carl, who was a bassist and worked with others like George Harrison, Clapton. I think his name is Carl Rattle That's or something. That's not what I was expecting, but Me that's neither. pretty cool. Yeah. I would have done the threesome. <laughs> <laughs> she decides to move out before she's kicked out, and... She moves out with two sisters, Terry and Annie, who are also dating musicians in the scene. She says Terry is still one of her best friends. They lived in a two-bedroom with three other girls, and they were kind of their own, like, little girl gang. And they even had denim jackets and patches that read, Teenage Bad Girls. (laughs) Yes. She describes them and their attitude as, like, the dawn of feminism, which I thought was really cute. Look, if me and you ever start a band, even if we're 45, the band is going to be called Teenage Bad Bad Girls. I am so into it. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working 
eating or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. So before Rita left Leon, he produced Joe Cocker's second album, which was released in 1969. Rita and Bonnie did the backing vocals for the album, and one of the songs, Delta Lady, was about Rita. She says... I was deeply honored, of course. No one had ever written a song about me. Leon also wrote another one, though, called A Song for You, which Rita describes as one of the most beautiful songs ever written, period. Who did we talk to that dated him? Leon Russell? Yeah. I'm just, I'm having such deja vu and so many flashbacks about him. But, like, 165 episodes in, I'm like, who, what? And when and where. Was it Chris O'Dell? Did Chris O'Dell go from England to it, yes, it the was. US it with was. Leon Russell? Yes, it was. 100% okay. was. Yeah. Okay. No, absolutely it was Chris O'Dell. Okay. Interesting. Because he wrote songs about Chris, yes. too. Yes. And she was in that scene. Absolutely it was Chris. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Brain. <laughs> so it's through Leon and Joe that Rita meets her next boyfriend, drummer Jim Gordon. He was super in demand. He worked with everyone that you can think of as well. And he was attractive and he had these beautiful curls. So she began kind of casually dating him. And this is, of course, no surprise. She also began hanging out in like Laurel Canyon and places like that. Who wouldn't? Right? She says, L.A. at that moment was beyond anything I had ever imagined that it could be. And I didn't know this, but for me, it was only going to get better. Yes. In 1969, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends were the opening act for Blind Faith, Clapton's new supergroup. So Clapton, Ginger Breaker, Steve Winwood, her boyfriend Jim, Delaney and Bonnie, they're all touring. They ask Rita to join the tour. She's extremely happy to do backing vocals. Before the tour began, they had lots of rehearsal time in England, so her and Jim stayed with Eric Clapton. She mentions them taking Owsley acid, and she had this great trip for a while, but it shifted, and she mentions that Jim turned into this scary bird of prey, Mm. and she mentions that there are seven Cherokee clans, and her mother's people were bird clan, and the connection of that and him becoming the scary bird, it was like the first time she was ever scared of him and sensed something dark in him. Wow. more on that later. They were staying with Eric and rehearsing during the whole Harrison Clapton Boyd love triangle. So she was there to witness that. Mm-hmm. She mentions a night that Patty confessed to her that she was secretly in love with Eric. And Rita thought she was like absolutely nuts because she was Rita really loves George. And Eric was a heroin addict at the time. And it was messy. It was a messy time. A Hard Day's Night was on TV the other day, and right, I watched it 
pretty much right from the beginning and just seeing George and Patty in that train scene where she's the schoolgirl being like that's when they met it, that was pretty much it for them and they were babies oh yeah babies so uh, young I love that they have that recorded like uh I know, and as much as you're like, oh, I just, like, wish it would have worked out for them and they could have been together forever. It's just like, no, man. No. No. Couldn't have. It is what it is. and Exactly. Since we're on the topic of other people's relationships, there is a horrible incident in the book regarding Delaney and Bonnie. That relationship was very similar, it seems, to Ike and Tina. And Delaney really saw Bonnie and Rita's friendship as a threat to him and one time he very badly beat Bonnie and her and Bonnie weren't allowed to like hang out together anymore because of it. It's just crazy how prevalent like that behavior was back then in this scene. Yep. So with Delaney and Bonnie and Clapton, they toured Europe. Harrison, George Harrison and other friends would join for some shows. She mentions that in the moment she was aware of how amazing it was. And she also mentions witnessing the British rock star decadence and how they were all like fucking nuts and super entitled. Oh, yeah. While there, she also did backing vocals on Clapton's solo album. And she was really excited to start hearing those songs that she did backing vocals on on the radio. It was this tour that Rita was looking out into the audience and took note of all the groupies. She says that she could see the fantasy in their eyes when they would watch Clapton and the hope, the look of hope that he would just look upon them and take them home. So this gave her an idea for a song. She mentions this to Bonnie and they began writing the song and then Delaney and Leon Russell came in and finished it. And Rita would sing the song live on tour and later Bonnie recorded it. So did the Carpenters a few years later. What song was it? Superstar. Oh. So, unfortunately, when Bonnie and Delaney recorded it, they did not give Rita any credit. Er, yes. Of course, she mentions this, like, she understands it's Delaney's doing, not Bonnie's. And in the 90s, Bonnie and Leon finally gave Rita credit in an interview that they did. And since then, people know now. But she didn't get any money for it, any credit, nothing. This wasn't the only time Rita would be screwed out of a major writing credit. Rita wrote and recorded a demo with Jim before they went to England. And when they stayed with Clapton, she played it for him Uh and gave him the demo. It was the piano part that Clapton ends Layla with. Oh! Yeah. So about a year later... She hears Layla on the radio and she's like, wait a minute, like, why is this so familiar? Like, I know this. And she gets the album. She's playing it. She's like, this is my song. And sure enough, Jim is credited, but not her. Brutal. Naturally, she's pissed. She calls up Robert Stigwood, who's Clapton's manager, and he says, you're going to go up against me? Who do you think you are? You're a girl singer. What are you going to do? So infuriating oh for sure she tried to go to the label they were like you have no money to fight this like you're screwed and she says again like i don't care about the money i want the credit like i that's my piece i wrote that and to this day clapton refuses to acknowledge her role in the song i said it before i'll say it again that clapton is a dick so after the delaney and friends tour in 1970 she joined another tour the mad dogs and englishmen tour with joe cocker and that really changed her life forever it was an intense tour seven weeks 48 concerts 52 cities another amazing background singer claudia lanier was on that tour she's the muse behind bowie's lady grinning soul cool she was also an iquette nice she's awesome She, she deserves her own episode too a lot of the delaney and friends band jumped onto this tour because it was so last minute and joe desperately needed a band for the tour but she mentions in hindsight that delaney and bonnie really got screwed over and felt like everyone abandoned them and the vibe on this tour was vastly different from theirs before it was fun and creative everyone was supporting each other but now is when like competition began to creep in it was super grueling no one came out of that tour unscathed basically (laughs) yeah She mentions how rough it was on Joe and that they became super close even after the tour. She later would say, 
I wouldn't say we were romantically involved. I just wanted to take care of him. So they were very close. Yeah. Rita was still dating Jim, who was also on this tour. Rita mentions more than once, which I like because I'm the same way. When she's dating someone, she doesn't want to be around them 24-7. She likes having her own time, her own life. And when they come together, you have a great time. She found out later Jim was cheating on her with another backup singer that Rita recruited, who also used to date Leon Russell. It's very rock uh, and roll. It's all (laughs) very rock and roll. She mentions everyone being super sexually charged on this tour. No one was like over 30 yet. So it was just like young, hot musicians wanting to bang, right? (laughs) Who can blame them? And she also mentions this was like the first time that cocaine was like really entering the picture and it was never the same the scene never was the same after that before it was like lsd and marijuana and chill but cocaine took that away yeah egos and yeah rita experienced a horrifying incident which like her car accident the trauma would be long lasting one night after the show everyone was hanging out having a good time she's with jim things are good And he's like, can I talk to you privately for a moment in the hallway? And she's like, yeah, sure. They go out into the hall, and he hits her so hard, she goes flying into the wall. What? She was knocked unconscious. One of the backup singers heard what was happening because she went flying into the wall of her room and had to drag her into the room. Jim apparently just went back into the party like nothing ever happened. Thankfully, a tour manager made sure that Rita was safe for the rest of the tour and she got a restraining order on him but nobody fired him or anything the tour manager would escort her everywhere for the rest of the tour and the band also made sure to be around to protect her she had to perform with a massive swollen back guy for the rest of the time on the road no one knew this at the time but Jim actually suffers from schizophrenia Mm. And all the coke he was doing certainly Mm -hmm. wasn't helping that. I don't think he was diagnosed at the time either. But he would hear voices that would tell him to do bad things. And in the 1980s, Jim actually had a schizophrenic episode and murdered his mother. (gasps) Oh, my God. Yeah. Jim is still in prison or an institution to this day. Wow. Yeah. There was a music documentary made about the tour, and when it came out, Rita actually experienced a panic attack at the premiere because she was still carrying all of the trauma from that. She says that the bruises Jim left faded, but the trauma of being hit stays with you forever. Jim did try to get her back, but of course she was terrified of him, and rightfully so, she stayed away. A positive thing did come out of this tour, though. Rita got signed for her first record deal. Before we get there, though, she was still doing backing vocals, and she got to participate in what would be one of her favorite experiences, which was backing Stephen Stills in the song Love the One You're With. Oh, fun. Yeah. So Graham Nash was at the studio, and Rita was, like, vibing Graham, and he asks her to go on a date to the Crosby, Stills, Nash show that was happening the next night, and she was really excited. He was like, call me. I'm staying with Stephen. So she calls Stephen the next day, and Stephen's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, Graham said that he can't make it, but I'm going to escort you instead. He's the kind of nuts one, right? I think everyone except Graham is a little off in this band. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Like, David Crosby's just terrible. That's maybe Um, who I'm thinking of. Yeah. Well, let me me tell you this story. Okay. (laughs) So Stephen picks her up. And she sees Graham at the show, but he seems off and disinterested. So she's like, okay, I guess I'll continue to go out with Stephen. And within two weeks of knowing her, Stephen wrote his song Cherokee about her. But Rita was still much more interested in Graham. And finally, she was like, this is silly. I'm just going to call and ask him out. I want to go out with him. Let me guess. Like, Stephen told him that Rita wasn't interested, and he got in. He was basically trying to steal her, but you nailed it. Yeah, they're both just like, well, I wanted to date you. Well, I thought you did want to date me. <laughs> he just fucked over his friends. Like, 
when they realized what happened and that they had feelings for one another, Graham wanted them to tell Stephen up front, like, I don't want to hide this from him. Let's just get this over with. And Stephen's reaction was to physically attack Graham. <laughs> I mean, at least he didn't attack Rita. Like, at yeah, the very true. least. My God. There's some other stories of Stills that make him sound like such an egotistical loser in this book. And he really held that grudge, even though Rita says, like, he didn't really care about me. But, like, Graham wanted a real relationship. Mm -hmm. So she calls Graham a perfect guy and as sweet as any human she's ever met. She says he always made her feel like an equal, which was unbelievable given the egos of most male rock stars. This was after him and Joni split. That was recent. He wanted to marry Joni. Joni wasn't ready. Graham sounds like an amazing boyfriend, really present, really loving. He got her lovely gifts like a turquoise bracelet that she still wears, um, an Escher print, and a Volkswagen convertible. Oh, thank you very much. They, right? They moved in together for a time. She actually went to England with him to meet his family. She's still good friends with his sister to this day. She was with Graham for about a year, and she says they didn't really have a breakup. They just kind of drifted apart their schedules as musicians just they weren't spending that much time together at the end right and she didn't want to be tied down just yet she still says that Graham is the best guy that she ever knew and that she deeply loves him and always will but another man was going to enter her life very soon but before we get there let's talk a bit about Rita's career she was super excited to be working on this album but really makes a point in the book to discuss how incredible it was to be a backup singer in that period and how many other amazing women were around and how magical it was to be a part of all of that talent. When she was working on her album, she knew so many strong musicians and vocalists and all of them were happy to join in. There's literally like way too many for me to name. If anyone's interested, obviously read the book or check out her albums on Wikipedia. It lists all the musicians it's amazing i think i have to have a rita coolidge summer seriously uh, it was it was really fun listening to all of these albums when i was uh, researching the episode so her debut album was released in 1971 she was 25 years old wow and yeah she was on her way to memphis again for rehearsals before the tour when she meets chris christopherson <laughs> So Chris was just stepping into fame at this point as well. He'd previously been writing songs for others. He wrote Me and Bobby McGee, which became a huge hit after Janice passed away, which was earlier that year or the year earlier, I think. Chris's family actually disowned him for a time when he decided to follow his dreams as a songwriter. He had turned down... A, like a teaching job at West Point. Thank God. To, move to Nashville. Yeah. Chris actually worked as a janitor at Columbia Records to get his foot in the door. Wow. So Chris and Rita meet at the airport and end up sitting next to each other on the plane. Rita says it was love at first flight. <laughs> <laughs> she says of Chris... He has a mighty ego, but his self-effacement and interest in others, no matter what or who they are, is genuine. That, in such a good-looking man, is, of course, devastating. On top of that, he absolutely radiated outlaw. Everything about Chris was bad boy, and that's the most attractive guy in the world to a young woman. Ain't it the truth? She says, you dream and wait and you have faith and fantasies that someone is going to come along and really rock your foundation. And when he came, I knew it was him immediately. This is a hot episode. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> they are such a beautiful couple, too. They both felt the same way. Chris was smitten. And instead of going to Nashville, where he was originally headed, he got off at Memphis to hang out with Rita. She says that night... They were like naming their their child like that's how strong their connection was they knew they were going to get married and be together it was just like meant to be both of them were touring canada at the same time and kind of overlapped enough that she got to be at his shows and was really in awe of the way that he performed and she says that watching him made her realize that she didn't want to be like a full-blown rocker chick like she wanted to sing songs that moved people like he did when their tours were over, they immediately moved in together in L.A. 
Chris was also just beginning his acting career. So she went with him to Mexico when he shot Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Bob Dylan is also in that film. And she mentions that Sarah, his wife, was down there. And they hung out a lot and had a great time. And Chris and her actually sang backing vocals for Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door. Oh, cool. You don't get to hear about Sarah that often. And she put in a really cool story about how one time some crazy Bob Dylan fan broke into their house that they were staying at. And the guy was like, are you the sad eyed lady from the lowlands? And she was like, no, I'm the woman who just called the cops. Get the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Rita and Chris were madly in love from the beginning, but she says from the beginning, they were also kind of volatile and argued a lot. He was a little controlling. She wasn't one to be controlled. He would kind of question her constantly, like, where were you? He even once accused her of having a sexual relationship with her girlfriend because she went out with her girlfriend to, like, hang out and catch up. Chris was also a heavy drinker, and he was very aware of that outlaw image and wanting to project that. Not good. No. He was also not faithful, and, of course... As the years passed and his fame grew, so did the number of women he was womanizing. She says after they split, that woman would constantly come up to her on tour and be like, oh, like I was also with Chris and like share stories and some even being like, tell Chris hi for me. She's like, you have no idea how many women are so insensitive to their participation in the demise of a couple. Yeah. They were married in 1973. Rita's dad married them, of course, and they divorced in 1980. But let's talk about their time together a little bit here. So it was only natural that they began making music together. They recorded several duet albums, and they actually won two Grammys, one in 1974 for their song From the Bottle to the Bottom, and the other in 1976 for Lover, Please. When they performed together, she says, this powerful, powerful love that we had for each other just went right up through the microphone and into the records and hearts of the audience. I really highly recommend checking out some of their performances on YouTube. She's absolutely right. Like you feel it, you get a sense of their connection and their love. Like there's so much heat and passion there. So check that out. There's a funny story in the book about her and Chris going to Disneyland with Willie Nelson and his wife Connie who are really good friends with them and they all took some very very strong edibles and were kind of like freaking out on the rides and stuff so you know they were having like fun times as well not everything was terrible it boggles my mind every time I hear about people taking like an edible or LSD or whatever and going to an amusement park The first time I ever did mushrooms, I went to the zoo with my friends, (laughs) and it was an experience, let me tell you. Brave, wow. (laughs) So Rita and Chris had a daughter. Her name's Casey. She was born in March of 1974. She's now a musician, just like her parents. Cool. What's her name? Casey, Casey what is she? Christofferson. Casey Christofferson, okay. Rita says, of course, that year was the happiest time in her life. Seven weeks after Casey was born, her and Chris did a tour of Australia, Japan, and New Zealand, and Casey came along with them, so she's been touring since seven weeks. After this is when Chris's alcoholism really began to affect them. So the pressures of his acting and music career really got to him, and he would drink heavily at night. One night, he was so drunk that he could barely walk down the hall, and when she tried to help him, he kind of struck her in the face he blacks out he was super shocked and disgusted with himself the next day it never happened again it was just like a not okay but a blackout thing that happened and it's interesting because it actually happened the night after chris posed in playboy to promote one of his films him and his co-star sarah miles i think the film is called like sailor who falls from grace with the sea or something it's a a weird (laughs) title but him and sarah miles posed in like sexual positions so the shoot was like basically porn and 
he really had to get, I guess, obliterated to do it. And Rita had no idea what the shoot was going to be like. And so when it came out, she felt pretty humiliated and betrayed. I did look up the photos because I'm a perv and they are spicy. <laughs> what was the name uh, again? Check them out. <laughs> it was Chris Christopherson, Playboy, Sarah Miles. Okay. She mentions that the next day she went into the studio and she recorded a couple of her songs, The Hungry Years, and I Don't Want to Talk About It and how like emotional and raw she was and that she feels like you can really get that from the songs. Like with most relationships, Rita says, eventually the distances became greater and the good times between us more and more became memories. Chris actually ended up getting a grip on his alcoholism after he starred in A Star is Born. Mm. He saw the similarities in the character and he realized, if I don't stop, I'm going to end up the same way. He ends up becoming a much more present father and things were going pretty good. And when Rita got pregnant again in 1977, they were all very happy and there was like hope in the relationship once again. This is so tragic, though. Rita actually ended up losing the baby mm. at seven months Ooh. and she had to carry the fetus for another month before they could remove it so obviously this is like the darkest point in her life oh yeah she thankfully had her sisters and her family around for emotional support there's this one shining moment through the darkness though she's really feeling low she's unsure of her future worried about what's to come really at her lowest Rita's like looking for a sign and one day she's doing the dishes and on the radio comes her cover of Jackie Wilson's Hire. You know that song? Yeah, love. Yes. Oh, yes. So she covered that and Rita says, listening to myself sing about the redemptive power of love stirred my heart for the first time in months and in that moment I had an epiphany not only would I survive this difficult time but I would thrive and she says this song really became an anthem for her and she still closes all of her shows with it higher actually went to number two on the charts and that album anytime anywhere number six and sold more than a million copies this was her most successful point yet and she booked a tour for that and it was really like a great distraction from the grief but of course wasn't easy sailing for her but she pulled through she was really finally hitting the same level of fame that chris had and that put her on equal footing with him professionally chris did not mm. like that she mentions a lot of cruel moments of him putting her down like she'd play him a song and he'd make fun of her for like not hitting a note properly or always had something negative to say finally Rita's like I mean I guess for a year she'd really been trying to get him to go to therapy but he always refused so their issues worsened instead of you know them working together through it by 1979 Rita decides I need to move forward I need to get out of this this isn't working anymore of course losing Rita made Chris suddenly want to put in the effort begged her to come back promises it would be different even was like i'll go to therapy but rita says she's a stubborn person and when she it's done mm -hmm. it's done good for rita yeah. i love that she made the decision and she didn't falter their divorce was an easy one they settled they got joint custody for casey it wasn't like a big nasty divorce or anything she says that the fans really took the split hard and because she was the one who left him, she got portrayed like this villain and that, you know, Chris was this poor soul who was yeah. left. Chris actually helped that narrative because he did an interview like with People magazine and they put Chris and their daughter Casey on the cover and the articles like, you know, life after Rita. And of course, the fact that she worked so hard to put up with his issues and to keep the family together to then be portrayed as this woman who like abandoned her family like that really hurt yeah of course rita was moving on from chris though she was touring she was performing with friends rebuilding her life and like many singers she actually developed nodules on her vocal cords Ooh. she had to get them removed it was a worrisome time but it was a success thank goodness 
this is sort of when Rita's book ends. Mm -hmm. She fast forwards in the epilogue. She talks about her sister Priscilla. They were really best friends throughout their entire life. Very close. Tragically, in 2014, Priscilla was murdered by her husband in a murder-suicide. That wasn't Booker T, obviously. Yeah. She had remarried by then. And... Yeah, just a terrible end for Priscilla, sadly. Rita talks about the memorial and how all the important people that we've talked about in this either came to support her or sent her support. Like Graham was there, for instance, and Chris, obviously. Rita's parents both passed away in 2012, six months apart from each other. And they were married for 74 years. Wow. There's one thing Rita doesn't mention anything about in the book that I read and was very curious about was that she was actually one of the first VH1 VJs in the 80s. I couldn't find much more info than that, but I would have been curious to see her write about that, like how that came to be, if she enjoyed it, but she didn't. Oh, she left that out. In the 90s, her and Priscilla formed the band Willa. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It's W-A-L-E-L-A. Wella. Wella. Okay. Which means hummingbird in Cherokee. So they were a Native American music trio, and they actually performed at the 2002 Winter Olympics. Cool. In 2004, Rita married a man named Tatsuya Suda. Again, she doesn't mention anything about him in the book. They're divorced now. I found an article on flamingomag.com that came out recently, and it discusses, this is so cool, she's actually in a relationship now with a man that was a college ex. Hmm. Oh, flame. She She actually reconnected with him because he attended an event after Rita's book came out, and she was doing like a book reading, and he went... And now she moved back to Tallahassee and they live together. And on that website, Flamingo Meg, there's like beautiful photos of them together on their property. It's just gorgeous. They look really happy. She looks like she's, you know, in a really great place right now. Great. She has released 25 albums. The last one was in 2018. And yeah, I think she spends a lot of time now painting and just being in Tallahassee with her lover and just enjoying life good for her that's rita for you wow i learned so much it's like another one of those episodes where i was just hanging off of every word it's so interesting what a life and i'm glad that she got to have all those experiences she got to write about it and now she's like chilling out doing art with her lover in tallahassee yeah and You know, she was touring up until life changed for all of us. So perhaps with things sort of going back to normal again, I wouldn't be surprised if she continued to make music and tour and all of that as well. Awesome. Well, let's all have a Rita Coolidge summer. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I really do encourage everyone to check out the book if you're obsessed with that era and those, you know, all the people I mentioned because she goes into much greater detail than I can. But um I was just obsessed reading the book. I had so much fun. And um, well, that was great. Thanks for letting me share. Yeah, that was a wonderful episode. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You can check us out on all of your favorite social apps like TikTok and Instagram, a little bit of Facebook. And uh, yeah, always feel free. Send us a message. Send us a DM. Email us, musespod at gmail.com. And thanks for being awesome. Yeah, thanks See you everyone. Next week. Check you next week. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantelle Mew and Lynx O'Leary. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery, following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. 
Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown. <laughs>